Amen. Well, back in 2007, a very interesting research study was done by a team at Oxford University. It was called the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project. Great name, right? The stated goal of this study was to find out whether scientific explanations support or undermine religious beliefs. And so for three years, from 2007 to 2010, it was reported in 2011, 57 researchers from all over the world conducted 40 separate studies across a diverse range of cultures, including 20 different countries, and they came up with their findings. And to their shock and dismay, their findings were not exactly what they had expected. The research discovered this, that human beings across the spectrum of race, language, and culture have a predisposition toward religion. Specifically, two things rose to the top. Number one, a predisposition to believe in some type of divine being. And secondly, a predisposition to believe in the existence of an afterlife, that some part of their mind, soul, or spirit lives on after death. In fact, and this is really the shocking conclusion, they said to believe in such things is actually a part of what makes us human. Now, that's a secular study that came to that conclusion, that this is what makes us human, that those beliefs are innate and not learned. The collective worship impulse, the pilgrimage impulse, a sacred space impulse, those are all terms and phrases that came out of the findings of this report. Now, as Christians, we already knew that was true. But isn't it great when we see secular scientists finally catch up with us? When they're surprised when their findings reveal biblical truth, it's always a nice thing to step back and enjoy. As we continue today in our study in Romans 1, Paul's going to talk about this very subject, how human beings naturally worship someone or something. And no matter how much your agnostic or atheist neighbor, friend, coworker, whatever, as much as they object, understand that that person is incurably religious. Even when he rejects the God of the Bible or he, he rejects the idea of God in general, that person still never ceases to be religious. We've got to be careful about defining things, and this idea of religion can be very, very tricky. In fact, the unbeliever becomes religious in order to reject the God of the Bible. It's just a different form of religion where he manufactures his own deity and substitutes that person or that thing in the place of where the creator belongs. The Oxford study confirmed that as well. Here's what they wrote in their findings. Quote, efforts to repress the religious impulse in man is likely to be short-lived as human thought seems to be deeply rooted in religious ideas. And so man will always be religious in some form or fashion. It's, it's simply built into him. It's, it's innate to, to men and to women to believe that there is something greater than themselves out there, some type of divine being, and to believe in what we call a dualism, the fact that at some point the body and the soul or the spirit, whatever you might want to call it, is separated at the point of death. And so this is why, if you're a fan of archaeology like I am, it's amazing how at every single dig that you read about, what's the, what are the things that they always find at these digs? They find ruins of a temple 
or they find religious artifacts. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're in the Far East in China or you're in the Far West here with the Native Indians, Native Americans, or if you're in Egypt or Mesopotamia, it doesn't matter. What you find is that human beings will always, always, always worship. With that in mind, grab your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you're not already there. We're going to verses 21 to 25 this morning. Romans 1, 21. And this morning, and in our next message, we're going to hear Paul use very specific language about exchanging the truth for things that are false. Exchanging the truth for things that are false and destructive to a human being. First, he's going to talk about idolatry. That's the focus for this morning, exchanging the glory of God for what I call pitiful substitutes, worshiping created things rather than the creator. And then in the second message, he's going to talk about the foolishness of homosexuality, exchanging the natural sexual function for that which is unnatural. And all of it grows out of the darkness of man's heart. It grows out of man's continuous rebellion against his creator, his ongoing rejection and suppression of the truth about God. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Here's the first time this word is used, and exchanged, underline that, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and even crawling creatures. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they what? Exchanged, underline it. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I'm not going to lie to you this morning. This passage is a downer. I mean, I, 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 as I'm outlining Romans and I get to this section, I'm like, wow, that's a heavy, rough passage. And so there's not a whole lot of good news to report here, although we'll do some application at the end. But as we go through these verses, there's three things. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, and you're like, well, okay, the context here is, is for unbelievers, so what is in here for me? There's three things I want you to think about. First of all, remember that before God rescued you, you were no better off than anybody that we're talking about in this passage. So pride is not allowed. Secondly, you have no reason to boast in your status as a child of God, as you sit here this morning, because God did all the work to save you. In fact, he saved you in spite of yourself. So again, no pride is allowed. And number three, all of us here have friends and family who are still unsaved. And therefore, compassion is what is required, not arrogance. Amen? Let's look closer at verse 21. Basically, all we're going to do this morning is sort of walk through the logic of this passage. It's a very logical passage. Verse 21, for even though they knew God. Now, who is the they here? Well, in the previous verses, and if you've been with us, you know this already, Paul's been talking about mankind in general, anthropon in the Greek. It refers to all of humankind, both male and female. All human beings have a knowledge of God. We've got to stipulate that and stand on that truth because as you're talking to unbelievers, oftentimes they will dispute that, won't they? 
Paul says we all have a knowledge of God. The creator has made his presence known to everyone. He's made it clear and evident. All you have to do is look around and you will see him in everything. But rather than acknowledging him, people everywhere engage in a systematic suppression of the truth. Why do they do that? Because of their wicked deeds. That's what Paul says. So they prefer the darkness to the light where they believe in their self-deceit, but they believe that if they retreat into the darkness and avoid the light of God, that they can somehow hide their wickedness. The reality is God's presence is a threat to them. And maybe if you're, if you're recently saved, if, if you lived uh, like I did for a period of time as an adult unsaved, I know this to be true, and maybe you do as well. God's presence is a threat to them. It's a, a threat to their own self-designed moral standards. It's a threat to their autonomy, the idea that they want to live independent from God. And it's a threat to their quest to conceal their sinful deeds. So the knowledge of God is simply unacceptable to a pagan. So what does he do? He buries what he knows to be true so that it will no longer pose a threat to the way that he wants to live. And for this reason, Paul says, because of the ongoing suppression of the truth and the ongoing unrighteousness of man, that God's wrath is continually being poured out upon the earth. Now back to verse 21. Even though all human beings know God, they didn't honor him or give him thanks. So because of sin, natural man does not glorify God as he should. Now, we talk a lot at Oak Hill about the glory of God, and it's it's one of the great themes of Scripture and one of our favorite things to talk about. But have you ever sat down and actually tried to define the glory of God? It may be more difficult than you think. Here's what I would say the glory of God means. His infinite, intrinsic beauty and worth of his character. It's all that God is in all of his perfection, his perfect attributes. Let me say it again. The infinite, intrinsic beauty and worth of his character. We have to understand, you guys, as creatures, contingent beings who don't have the power even for the next breath in our lungs, we are contingent upon God's sustenance. We have to remember that the glory of God is the ultimate value in this universe. There is no higher value than the glory of God. It's what we as his children are called to to see, to understand, to know, and then reflect to a lost world. And it's the very thing that the unbeliever suppresses and tries to bury so that he doesn't have to deal with it. And this really is the root fundamental problem of mankind. Natural man does not acknowledge or value the glory of God. They fail to exalt him as they should, and they fail, according to Paul, to give him the thanks and the praise that is due his name. Not only that, because that's bad enough that they won't acknowledge him or, or praise him or give him thanks, they go a step further, a much more wicked step further. They replace him as God. They put other things on the throne. Instead of him having the first place in their lives, those who walk in unrighteousness and rebellion against God put other things before him. So it's it's bad enough to say, I don't acknowledge you, I don't want to deal with you, but it's another to say, move over, God. I'm putting other things in your place. That's the first thing that Paul says. They did know God, but they didn't honor him or give him thanks. Now, here's where I want you to see in the rest of verse 21 how Suppressing the truth about God is always going to lead to degraded capacities, both in the mind and in the heart. Look at verse 21. They did not honor him or as God or give thanks. Here it is. But they became futile in their speculations. 
and their foolish heart was darkened. So when a person suppresses the truth about God and buries that truth, pushing him completely out of their, their conscious mind, their thinking grows futile. Now the Greek word there means empty or vain or, or senseless, useless. That's what their thinking becomes. See, God gave us minds with the capacity to do all kinds of things. The human mind really is a miracle, is it not? He's given us the capacity to reason and to ponder and to think and to speculate, all these things we can do with our mind. But he gave it to us for a reason, so that we might use these capacities to understand and to know him and to be able to read his word. But as we suppress the truth about God and ignore his word, those capacities become empty and they become useless. Now, when we say that, it's important to make this point. We're not saying that non-believers, atheists, agnostics, pagans, whatever you want to call them, we're not saying that they're, that they're stupid or that they're dumb, right? Paul's not making a statement here about man's intelligence. In fact, by the world standards, there are many non-believers who are incredibly smart. Understand, this is an issue of worldview. This is an issue of of understanding what we call ultimate things. You've got to start at the right point if you're going to end up at the right point. You've got to start at the right point if you want to properly interpret the data that's coming at you every single day. If you don't start at the right point, you're going to end up misinterpreting data and you're going to end up in the wrong place. So do you start with God and interpret life through that lens? Or do you start and end with man? Guys, that is a huge question. In fact, when you're out there sharing your faith with unbelievers, this is a great place to start. Start with worldview. Where do you start? Do you, do you believe in God's existence? Do you see life through that lens? Or, or are you the highest and the greatest evolved being? Start at the right place. If God doesn't exist, then both man and our universe are inevitably doomed to death and annihilation. Do you understand that? If there is no God, you and I and this whole universe will eventually go out of existence, will die, will become annihilated. And therefore, life as we know it on this earth, if that's true, really doesn't have any true meaning or purpose or value to it. If everything is destined for annihilation... There's just no lasting meaning, purpose, or value to it. If each individual person simply passes out of existence when he dies, then what ultimate meaning is there in life? Does it really matter that you and I existed at all? You might be able to say that, well, his life, this guy's life was important in the sense that it influenced others or it it affected the course of human history, but if all of human history is doomed for annihilation... If it's meaningless, then the best, even the best human life by any standard has only relative significance but not ultimate significance. Even the best life, the most influential life. If life ends at the grave, in an ultimate sense, it makes no difference whether you've lived like a maniac or you've lived like a saint. doesn't matter. And since your choices and behavior, according to this worldview... If your choices and behavior have no impact on your destiny, you might as well just live as you please, right? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. In fact, go ahead and take what you want from people. Step on, crush, kill. It doesn't really matter, does it? 
if all things are meaningless. Because in a world without a divine lawgiver, there can be no objective right and wrong, true? Only subjective opinions based on culture and my personal preferences. If nothing but death and annihilation stands with open arms at the end of this life, then what is the goal of all this? Is there any goal that we can, that we can talk about at all? If its destiny is nothing more than a cold, lifeless grave, then the answer has to be no. There really is no ultimate goal. There is no ultimate purpose. Our lives in this universe, imagine, are ultimately pointless. Think about that. If there is no God, then your life is not even fundamentally different than your favorite pet. And really, life becomes absurd. All that we're doing, this dance that we're going through, it all becomes absurd and meaningless. Now, I know we're talking big stuff here, right? But, but this is why we need to understand worldview and where these two divergent paths take us. How can an atheist or an agnostic dare to be a social critic? How can he, with a straight face, say this is wrong or that is wrong or denounce violence or racism? How can he, how can he you know, uh, uh, be angry about restrictions on his freedom all the while having to admit that these things are not connected to any objective moral standard or any divine law. It's just his preference. Well, why is your preference any better than that guy's preference? If there is no God, then all the evil acts of men go unpunished. And all the sacrifice of good men go unrewarded. Who can live with that type of view? The fact is, and, and your agnostic friends will never admit this, those who live a life of atheism or agnosticism really have to lie to themselves. They have to borrow. They have to borrow from you and I just to live a life of consistency, just to inject some happiness into their existence. Without God as the starting point, man's interpretations and conclusions about life and ultimate things will always be off kilter. That's why their speculations become futile. That's why their thinking ultimately becomes empty and vain and useless. Try doing this sometime. Try, try directing somebody. Say, I'm going to give you driving directions to a certain location. Try doing that if they don't tell you where they're at, where the starting point is. Hey, give me directions to Stevenson Ranch. I'm not going to tell you where I am, though. That, that's the problem with a worldview that doesn't start with God you're going to end up in the wrong place. Everything you do with your mind, minus God, is ultimately futile. It doesn't matter if you're super smart. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer or a scientist or an artist. Ultimately, it's futile. Now, not only is man's thinking futile, but what Paul's talking about here is his heart will also grow increasingly dark. When he suppresses the truth about God, when he shuts him out of his conscious mind, ultimately his heart is going to grow darker. Now when Paul talks about the heart, he's not talking about the, that thing pumping blood in your chest, right? He's talking about the core of who you are, your intellect, your emotions, and your will. And because of sin, because of this empty way of thinking, over time the heart of man devolves into greater corruption. He moves deeper and deeper into idolatry while at the same time retreating from the light so that he could conceal his wicked deeds. How he thinks, how he feels, the choices he makes, they become increasingly dark and self-focused. Is there hope for him? The only hope is the singular power in this universe 
that can bring light into a human heart. There, man has no innate light within his heart. We're going to find this out later in Romans 3. It only comes from Christ. I am the light of the world, Jesus said, right? He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what the unbeliever is missing, and his heart gets darker. So now take note of the direction here, because this is important. Paul isn't saying that mankind starts in darkness, right? That he doesn't start in futility and is slowly trying to work himself towards the light. That's not what he says. It's the opposite. He says mankind begins with the clear, inescapable light of the knowledge of God, and what happens? He descends away from it into greater and greater darkness. So the story of Romans 1 is not about man's evolution up the spiritual ladder of enlightenment. It's the opposite. It's a story of a steady decline into the depths of sin and rebellion. Guys, that's all of our story, is it not? Is that not all of our story, but by the grace of God? Amen. As we come to verse 22 now, we're going to see the destructive exchange that I talked about earlier. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now drop down to verse 25. We'll come back to 24 in a bit. Because here's the same truth. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So there's a logical decline here as well. Man suppresses the truth about God. His thinking becomes futile. His heart grows darker. But because he's still a religious being, right, inclined to always worship someone or something, that vacuum in his heart will be filled by something, and he will end up in what? Idolatry. He will end up in idolatry. Again, just because he rejects God and says, no, I don't believe your Bible, doesn't mean that he ceases to be religious. He will fill that hole with some form of idolatry. Instead of worshiping the creator as he was designed to do, he turns to worshiping any number of things. Now, you can look through the history of mankind. You'll find in the ancient world, they often, they often carved idols of wood and stone, right? And set up shrines in their homes, and they, they worship these, these false deities. Um, they created sometimes... Images, and this is really what Paul's referring to here in first century paganism, images of animals that they would worship and, and birds and even, even reptiles, things of that nature. Or you'd see them worshiping nature itself. We see this in so many cultures. The sun god, the moon god, the god of the harvest, the god of the rain, the god of thunderclouds, all these types of things. And then they will, they, in order to personify the God of the sun, they'll create an image that looks like a glorified human being, and they will worship that, whether it's Baal or it's Zeus or whatever it might be. Glorified man. And today's no different. Our idols are much more sophisticated. I don't think I know anybody that still carves little wooden or stone idols and you know, builds a shrine in their house. So we're more sophisticated, but we still we still worship. We're seeing an increase right now in animal worship in our culture. People who literally have come to the point where they say animals have equal or even more value than, than human beings. I know that's hard to believe, but that's happening. People who are going back to Gaia worship, this idea of the, the worship of nature through extreme environmentalism. These things are making a return. You know, everything goes through cycles. There's nothing new under the sun. 
But for the most part, people today who suppress the truth about God, they worship and give their devotion to things like celebrities and politicians and artists and philosophers, whoever is going to meet the passion and need of that particular moment. I mean, we'll put our trust in all kinds of material things, right? If I, I'll, I'll find happiness by worshiping material stuff, cars and houses and, and vacations and clothing. We'll even go so far, we're so narcissistic now that we will worship an image that we make of ourselves, right? You've seen this on social media. If I get just the right angle and pout my lips enough, <laughs> right, and the right lighting and, and, and pose, I mean, this is, this is a form of self-worship, you guys. This is narcissism. So idolatry, the idolatry that Paul's talking about here, has shifted in form but not in substance. His words here in Romans 1 are just as relevant to us today as to the Romans living in the first century. Whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, the heart hates a vacuum. And it will always fill that space and worship whomever or whatever we value more than God. Idolatry. Now, here's where the great self-deception takes place. Verse 22 says these folks claim to be wise. And man, I don't know about you, but in, in all of my interactions, and I have a lot of interactions with Sometimes militant unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, on social media and other places. This is so true. They believe that they are so smart and so wise. And, and, and they will call me a flat earther. And they will call me, oh, you're that guy who believes in that ancient book, right? And they will mock the Christian. And they will really come to believe they're so self-deceived that they believe that they've got it figured out and we're the crazy ones. So don't be surprised by any of that. We shouldn't be surprised by it. The exchange of God's glory for other things always seems wise in the eyes of somebody who has suppressed the truth about God. And I'll tell you why. It should be obvious to us. It actually makes sense from a human perspective. If if I can convince myself and others that there's no God, I get to live free of any judgment. I get to pull the strings of my own life. I get to call the shots. I'm in control of my life. It actually makes a ton of sense. I get to be God. Who wouldn't choose that? Stop and think about that for a second. From a purely human perspective, shutting out any concept that you're accountable to a a holy God someday, doesn't that make more sense? Why do you guys show up here Sunday after Sunday? I'm not paying you. Yet look. Why are you wasting your time? What's going on? Doesn't it make way more sense to just say, I'm God. I'll do what I choose. I'm sleeping in every Sunday. From a human perspective, that makes a ton of sense. What could be wiser than the choice to be a God? Maybe you've never thought about it that way. Now go back to the garden. What does the tempter say to Eve? God knows that in the day you eat from the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Guys, that was the lie at the very beginning, and it is still the same lie today. If you want to assume the role of God in governing your life, you are going to perceive that exchange as beneficial to you and the wisest thing that you can do, apart from the light of God. What makes us different? Why are we here? God has rescued us. The light has come into our hearts. We know better now. The folks out there that don't have that light, it makes total sense for them to say, I will be my own God. So don't be surprised by it. Don't be threatened by it. They really believe that they are wise. Now, here's the reality, right? They're actually fools. 
They're actually fools. We need to know why. Professing to be wise, claim to be so clever, in reality they become fools, right? Now again, don't misinterpret fools for for dumb or stupid. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The unsaved man is a fool, not because of his lack of intelligence, but because of his refusal to acknowledge the truth that he does know, that he's suppressed and buried and tried to keep out of his heart. And the foolishness of this exchange, the text is very interesting here. Notice the infinite difference in value when you make this exchange between what you trade away and what you get. Remember, the glory of God is the most It is the greatest value in all the universe. It is infinite. It is eternal. And what you get in this exchange is completely limited and bound by time. Why would you give away the infinite and eternal for limited and bound by time? That's a foolish exchange, is it not? The natural man is so foolish he would trade away things that are incorruptible and immortal for things that are both corruptible and mortal. Hard to believe, right? This is why we shake our head when we read the story of Esau. Remember how Esau comes in from hunting? And he just has this immediate need. What is it? He's hungry. Man, he's just, he's, he's just famished. And he comes in and he says, I need a bowl of stew and I will give anything for it. What does he give away? His eternal birthright for a bowl of stew. And we shake our heads and we say, are you kidding me? That's exactly what the man today who lives apart from God is doing. Trading eternal things for whatever meets his need right in that moment. Within this limited amount of time. Whatever is going to bring him satisfaction. Whatever in that moment he says, that will make me happy. This is going to satisfy me. But guess what? Ultimately, because it's limited, because it's temporal, it's not going to satisfy, is it? How many of you guys remember that? Search, 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 nothing satisfied. So he moves on to the next thing. In fact, his entire life becomes the pursuit of the next person or thing that he believes is going to satisfy him, but it's all a mirage, isn't it? He thinks he sees the water in the desert, and he gets there, and it's just sand. There is no water apart from the living water that Christ provides. He's a fool. If you value other things more than God, then you exchange the imperishable for the perishable. You exchange the perfect for the imperfect. You trade a diamond for a rock, a gold bar for a rusty nail. It's a regressive path that Paul's talking about here. It regresses from worship of God to man to birds to animals to creepy crawly things. And that's what the unbeliever is experiencing right now, a regressive path of futile thinking and a darkened heart. Told you this was a downer. But it gets worse. The most terrifying verse in this whole passage is verse 24. Back up there. Therefore God did what? Underline it. Gave them over. God gave them over in the lusts or cravings of their heart to impurity. And in particular, he's talking about sexual impurity, and he's setting up the next section, which is a a discussion of the archetypal foolishness of homosexuality. Sexual impurity, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. By the way, can I just a real quick aside? Um, Next week, Adam is going to be here in the pulpit. The week after is the discussion about homosexuality. For those of you with, with young kids, this would be a time for wisdom. 
Paul's very blunt and very straightforward in his discussion of that topic, and so I just want to give you guys a heads up. Two weeks from now, we'll be talking uh, in detail about that particular um, sin. Now, this is perhaps even more relevant, verse 24, today than it was in the, in the first century. So many people in our culture today view sexual freedom as their latest idol. Sexual freedom as their religion. It is the altar that they worship at every day. Today, every proclivity under the sun is out there for all to see. There is no shame left. There is nothing left in the shadows. All the perversions are out there on the web. They're everywhere in the public space. Not only are they out there, they're now flaunted and even celebrated. And I'm not trying to be a prude here, right? I will shout from the rooftops that God has given us this beautiful gift of sexual expression within the covenant of marriage. I'm not being a prude here. What I'm talking about is lust and impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies. That's what Paul's talking about here. Because oftentimes, you know, the church gets that reputation. Oh, you guys just don't like to talk about that thing. S-E-X. But it's a beautiful gift that God has given us, is it not? Well, who's the first one to say that? That was impressive. (laughs) So this is not about suppressing the beauty of our God-given sexual desires. This is about outright sin. What Paul is describing here is the natural result of a degraded mind and a darkened heart in a life of false worship. And so as a result, he says that God gives men over to the sinful desires of their heart. He gives them over to rampant sexual immorality. Things that were common in ancient paganism and are common today in modern secularism. But this is a terrifying statement that God would abandon, that he would give people over. He's going to use this phrase, by the way, twice more in this chapter. Here's what it tells us, that there is a limit to God's patience. There is a limit to his long-suffering nature for rebellious man. And so when man makes a choice to abandon God, there comes a point where God abandons him. He turns him over. He turns them over to, his own, to their own sin, to the very things that they've chosen for themselves. Notice he doesn't cause that. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't move people into it. He simply removes his hand. He ceases to curb their willful determination to sin. He withdraws that restraint, that common grace that he has to restrain people from sin. And he ha- takes his hands off and he says, let your will be done. You will suffer the consequence for this. He allows that sin to run its course. He allows it to reach its ultimate depths. That is scary, you guys. That is a sobering thought. And here's the really scary thing about this. When, someone turned, when God turns someone over to their sin, it's going to intensify. It's going to accelerate. It's going to get more habitual. It's going to get worse and worse. And we're going to see this next time. The downward spiral of human sinfulness produces ever greater levels of perversion and idolatry. One last important note on this giving over. Understand that God's not just being permissive. There is an active part in this. Um, He positively consigns these sinners to suffer the consequences of their choices. Here's here's what one scholar, Doug Moo, puts it. He says, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Yikes. Yikes. It's terrifying. 
So there's the logic of this passage. How, how can we end on a good note after all that? Let's come back to you and I. Let's come back to all the believers here in the church this morning. Now listen, I could try to stretch this passage and give you all kinds of application about the idolatry in your life, but that's not the context here. This is not about believers. This is about unbelievers. Now maybe God's worked in your heart and and, and pressed something on your heart about idols in your life, but that's not the context here. But we can talk about those of us in church this morning who've surrendered to Christ. Understand this distortion of our souls is not what we were designed to be. It's not how God designed us. We were meant to know God and to glorify him and to praise him with thankfulness. We were meant to see him and understand him and to reflect his beauty to a lost world. We were meant to do that not by exchanging him for something else, but always by preferring him over other things. Preferring him over other things. I like what John Piper puts it like this. He says, we're to glorify God by treasuring him over all treasures, enjoying him over all pleasures, Desiring him over all desires, prizing him over all prizes, wanting him over all wants. Is that you? Is that where you are today in your devotion to Christ? The mark of the true Christian isn't that we win every single spiritual battle or that we don't stumble into temptation. It's not that you know, our desires are always going to be purpose, perfectly focused on the Lord at all times. The mark of the true Christian is that at the root of our lives is a new passion for Christ over everything else. And that whenever we stumble, whenever we lose that spiritual battle, that there is this constant desire and passion to repent of our sin and to come back and put him back in his first place. That's what the Christian life is. You with me on that? You're not going to win every battle. Listen, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to be distracted. And you're going to say, oh boy, here comes that idol in my life. And I might stumble. And I might lose that battle today. But God's mercies are new every morning. And so we wake up renewed in our passion to repent of sin and to bring the gospel back, to preach it to ourselves, and to renew our focus on Christ. It's a daily, moment-by-moment battle. That is the Christian life. And how long do we do it? Until the day he calls us home. It's that simple. Now what about our unsaved friends and family? Remember what Jesus asked. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is what the unsaved are facing today. Even as we sit here this morning in church, in this building, they're living for themselves, they're worshiping created things, they're trying to gain the whole world, and they don't have any clue about their own soul. They're marking time until they face the judgment seat of Christ. And even though Paul says that God has given them over, We can never lose hope, folks. We can never stop praying for them. We can never stop sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Always keep in mind who you once were. Remember when Paul says to to the Corinthians, he says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here comes this great statement. And this is what some of you were. Me too. This is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our story. That is our story.
And so this is the miracle of salvation, that we could be rebellious, that we could be wicked, that we could be turned over to the consequences of our own sin, and yet God would still be merciful and kind to come and to save us. And not only save us, but then transform our desires and our passions to be conformed to the image of his son. Friends, we're surrounded every day by people who have been turned over to the consequences of their sin. Not all of them, by the way, are militant about it. Right? There are some that are angry and militant and aggressive. Some folks are just, you know, they're living in neutral. They really don't want anything to do with God. How many, you know people like this? They don't want anything to do. Maybe they'll show up at church on Christmas and Easter. Right? They'll do some amount of what they would call spiritual penance to try to make up. And they're hoping for the best that they're on the curve come judgment day. There's a lot of those folks out there. They're lost. They're lost. Just as the militant atheist is lost. Are we taking every opportunity to show them why? In the end, that their thinking is futile. That their hearts have become darkened. That they need a sacrifice for their sins. That they need Jesus. Are we taking those opportunities? The great praise that I take from this passage is knowing that our sovereign God will save his elect. Isn't that great? He will save them, and he will transform them from idolaters into joyful worshipers. And so let us never forget as we sit here today, we were once them, and that nobody, nobody, nobody is too sinful or too far gone to be rescued by God. Let us be faithful to share that message each and every day. Amen? Let's pray.